0: I'm Michael White from Lean Towards Joy. This is the podcast that talks about just that, how leaning towards joy can change every part of your life. In this five-part series, we will be chatting with therapists that have made the transition from an agency setting to their own private practice. Some have thriving private practices, some have opened up their own agencies, and some have joined online platforms. The one thing that they all have in common is that they too were once newly licensed and faced with the decision to go out on their own. This series will discuss what helped them make that transition to private practice and what tips or lessons they can share with the rest of us. So if you're a newly licensed therapist or looking to move in your career, then this episode's for you. Even if you're not a therapist, these stories transfer across multiple industries. These are people that lean towards their joy, follow their passion, and are shining their light. Today I'm excited to dive right into a conversation with Dr. Bedford Palmer. Dr. Palmer founded Deeper Than Color in Oakland, California, where he provides psychotherapy and diversity, equity and inclusion consulting to a diverse clientele of both individuals and organizations. He has served on the board of directors for the Association of Black Psychologists. He is the past president of the Alameda Psychological Association. He is the producer and co-host of the podcast Naming It. Even with all of this, he has found time to author two fantastic books, Black Joy, A Healthy Conversation About Race, and Daddy, Why Am I Brown, A Healthy Conversation About Skin Color and Family. When I decided to do this podcast, I set out to find someone who was a beacon of light and leaving a great impact on the world around them. And I was immediately led to you. So thank you for taking the time to chat with me today.
1: Uh I don't think I've ever been described as a beacon of light before, so I'm taking it back and trying to, to to be with it and go with it. But thank you. That's that's really flattering well, thing to say. Um, you know, trying to do some stuff. But
0: well, the stuff yeah. you're doing is impactful. So you are you are a light. Whether whether uh, I'll be the first, then I hope hope not the last, but I'll be the first. Um, so I want to begin today by saying just that. You know, we have listeners from all different walks of life uh, in all stages of their careers. Um, But if we can just start by sharing your earlier stages of like your career and kind of what led you to create Deeper Than Color.
1: So thinking in terms of um, (laughs) it's funny when you get to a certain age, like thinking about what what is the beginning and what was like the early stages and all that stuff. Um, So. I'll skip the early, early because you don't need to know about me mowing lawns and, and flipping burgers at McDonald's. But um, going, I think as a psychologist, uh, I got my my doctorate at Southern Illinois University of Carbondale and I went and, and I have already gotten my master's from Long Beach State. And I have to say UC Irvine as my undergrad because otherwise people get mad at me and, you know, zot all day. But okay. um, let's see. I think that I could really say that the trajectory of my career started actually UC Irvine um, where I studied anthropology and minored African-American studies. Um, And so the simple way of putting it is that I was able to learn a lot about how to understand culture. And I learned about my own culture and my own history uh, kind of at the same time. And in that moment, I was also doing peer advising and I was uh, active in the, um, the African Student Union and like student government stuff. And so basically the the little um, seeds of who I am right now were really starting to germinate at that point. As I moved through um, my educational career, um, it became more and more clear that the way that I differentiated myself was that understanding of culture and that understanding of kind of how to step out of yourself and how to see um, someone else's context and do it without feeling like yours is better, theirs is better, or that you need to like go in and change them, you know? And that's like a big deal for psychology too. Like anthropology you're supposed to stay away from stuff and just watch in psychology. We're in there working with people, but you're not supposed to be trying to change their values. You're not supposed to be trying to change like the central pieces of them. You're trying to help them make changes that they want to make. Um, and You'd be surprised how many people have a hard time with that 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 little piece of of, of understanding there. Um, so, if I fast forward, um, I got to the Bay Area in 2010. Um, I was doing my predoctoral internship, which is like the last step of a doctoral program in counseling psychology. Um, I was over at um, Cal, so I was in the Tang Center at Cal, which is like their counseling center. And um, there I was, you know, finishing my my professional training and I ended up getting hired instead of doing a postdoc that's traditional. I was hired directly on the staff at UC Davis and I coordinated services to students of African descent. And so in that, I basically was able to do the things I do as a clinician, as a therapist. But I was also able to do the other pieces around focusing in on, on my personal ethnic culture and and the community at UC Davis in a way that I wasn't able to do anywhere else. And so I had like a Black men's group. I did a lot of outreach. I saw mostly African-American students. Um, and and in doing that, there was like this learning curve and gaining this identity around this, this idea that we could do very specific services for specific communities, and it's good. You know, it's good for them. It's good for the communities around. When I was doing this stuff at Davis, they modeled the um the the outreach to other communities based on some of the stuff that I was doing with with the groups that we were doing with stuff with uh with black students and so every time we did something other people were able to kind of model off of that and be able to build in their spaces as well and i've seen that kind of progress so even as a professor now um i started our black history celebration at st mary's and from there we were able to start to celebrate other folks and build other, other whole apparatus to, uh, to, to build on stuff. So that's, that's kind of the beginning setting. So to get to deeper than color uh, first, I had uh, BFP consulting, which was like my personal private practice, like the, the one where it was just me. And I did that for some years. Um, and I, I tended to find that because of my, my branding and my, um, my reputation that I was building and the, the public intellectual stuff that I was trying to promote, um, people started to understand me as a person who was in the know about culture, was in the know about social justice, was in the know about diversity, and inclusion, all this stuff around that. And particularly that I was someone who might be a safer person to go to if you're a person of color, if you're a person coming from a marginalized community, if you're queer, if you're, if you're Black specifically, um, if you're a Black man specifically, specifically. Um, So I would get clients that come from those communities and they come from uh, across different walks. And what I started to hear a lot about was that I wasn't usually the first therapist they were seeing. Um, I would be the second or even the third, maybe the fourth. And they were coming to me specifically because they had a bad experience with the past therapist who was someone who was not part of their cultural group generally. And I'm just gonna, you know, I don't like to mince words. There's a lot of folks who came because they went to white or male or white male therapists who just completely invalidated their their experiences, who made them believe that racism wasn't happening for them or sexism wasn't happening for them or homophobia wasn't happening for them. And that whatever was going on in their environment was just a matter of them thinking their way out of it, Um, which, Isn't best practices in any way. Um, But when you have this kind of um, unaddressed cultural bias at best and at worst, you know, actually like people who are doing harm on purpose, um, then you end up with a group of folks who not only are they having a hard time with their general life, you know, which is what some, a lot of people come to to clinicians for. but now they're having a hard time even asking for help because help is dangerous. Um, help can hurt more, and so a lot of my practice became a healing space for folks who were who were dealing with this kind of. I, I want to try this one more time, you know, and um, and so a lot of my work started building in that. And it, again, it kind of just I started to learn that, like, okay, this is this is an important piece. You know, it's 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 an important area to focus in. And so a lot of my practice has focused in that space. Uh, You fast forward. So I started uh, BFP in 2016, Uh, fast forward to 2021. And um, I brought on another therapist as a psych assistant, psychological associate, which is a pre-licensed person who has a degree in psychology, a doctoral degree in psychology, and they're on their way to get their hours and do all that stuff. Now, when I did that, I had not had in my head the concept of really doing a a group practice. Um, It was something that seemed like something would be cool, maybe. But I I just didn't think it was something I could, like, have the bandwidth to do as I'm a professor. And, um, you know, this is like kind of my, you know, it's not, you know, it's a side gig in certain ways, you know, because my my full-time job is being a professor. Um, But when I brought her on it became clear that, you know, in bringing her on, the infrastructure started getting built. And if I could do onboarding with one person, I could do another onboarding with the other person. It's going to be the same. And so um, that's when the concept of Deeper Than Color, which had been like, you know, rattling around in my head for a while, started to to pull itself out. And it really comes down to, so when I think about Deeper Than Color, it's this idea that um, culture is, It it trumps race. You know, like culture is the way that we describe ourselves. Culture is, 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 is the way we understand and make meaning of the world. Race is a caste system that was built in order to subjugate people. Right. Now, it doesn't mean that the salience of race isn't there. Right. I'm a black man. I live a life of a black man. There's culture that's connected to being black, but culture doesn't come from blackness. It comes from you know, my African ancestors and my, my ancestors who lived in the United States and were enslaved and dealt with that. And my ancestors who dealt with all the other stuff that that came before that, you know, all of us have culture, white people got culture, black people got culture, brown people got everybody got culture. But there's specific ones that that we all have for ourselves and it's important. So the deeper than color piece is that is, is acknowledging that color is important, but it's also we can go deeper than that, and that is where where um, the brand kind of lives, and and the and, and the idea is that we're going to do liberatory, affirming, and um, culturally responsive work with folks, uh, which is the way that we're describing social justice, right? So, like you know, people say social justice all the time. This is how we operationalize it. Um, and so, what I've been able to do is recruit a, a group of clinicians and uh, and and admin who all have a similar belief set, a similar philosophy that they they, they put into their work um, that is about liberating our clients. It's about uh seeing and identifying with our clients. And, and, and when I say seeing, it's like a very specific kind of cultural meaning to that, like seeing a person's whole self. Um, so when I'm with you and we're talking, or one of my one of the clinicians with deeper than color is talking to, to one of our clients. Um, The client doesn't have to hide anything about themselves. The client doesn't have to to edit themselves for us. Um, We work to make sure that they don't have to, they have to, they can learn where they need to, how they need to protect themselves in the world, um, how they need to protect their peace, how they need to protect their minds, um, whether that means changing a thought process or if it means changing an environment. It means changing a person out of the environment, you know. Um, which I think is one of the big criticisms of of psychology and, and counseling is that people think, oh, well, you're just going to we're going to tell people to think their way out of stuff. Um, and that's a fairly simplistic technical thing that some clinicians do is just focus on the mind or just focus on past experiences or just focus on whatever theory they're coming with mm-hmm. and not thinking about there's a person in front of me who has a whole context and a whole understanding of life and a whole you know, you know, pantheon of ancestors that they're coming from, right? And they live within a society that we all live within. And if they think really hard, that does not mean a loaf of bread is going to show up on their on their table, you know? Yeah. But if they, if we talk about all the things around what it takes to get that loaf of bread on the table, and we think about who's getting in the way of them getting that loaf of bread so that they can actually counter that versus just kind of move blindly while someone is is harming them. Um, And more more than anything, if we're just not gaslighting them as therapists, pretending as if things that we feel uncomfortable with don't exist, Um, you know what I'm saying? So like as a man, it's uncomfortable to be reminded that misogyny exists. It's uncomfortable Mm -hmm. to feel that. It's uncomfortable to to feel that I have a part in that, that like when uh, a woman tells me that they had this bad experience with a man, that I have, I hold some responsibility, right. Because, and I might have done that same thing at some point, you know, Like, I I went to the clubs when I was younger, you know, I went to, you know, when I was a young dude, I did all kinds of stupid stuff. Right. And as an old dude, you ask my wife, she'll probably tell you I'd still do a bunch of stupid stuff, but owning that, you know, and, and, and holding that while also helping someone else to kind of process their stuff. That's a skill set that takes more than just a training. You have to dedicate time and energy in your career. You know, this is years of work that people go through and focus in on to get better at doing this. And I think that that's the differentiator between what we do at Deeper Than Color and what a lot of the folks do. And especially what a lot of these like uh, um, app based and all that other stuff does. It's like we, we're intentional and, and, and I, I, to be absolutely honest, I don't, I won't let anybody on to the team who doesn't hold these same values, uh, because I can't have people hurting people.
0: Yeah, no, that's, um, you know, obviously that makes a lot of sense. And, you know, in terms of, you know, understanding your part of it here, clearly, you know, white male, you know, hearing your, you know, what you're saying, it's like, it's Mm -hmm. absolutely true and trying to understand my, my role in, in my culture of, uh, You know of the history of it um i guess i i have it must be really is it a challenge to um for lack of a better word i guess filter who comes in and who leaves you know like how do you find the clinicians that kind of fit with the philosophy of that um you know the whole of who we are and the intersection of of all of these different um you know marginalized groups how how do you how do you as the founder try to be like okay this person seems like they're going to be a good clinician this person seems good but then they may not be you know so as someone who's a new therapist coming in and they, they 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 already have kind of a group of 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 um you know either coworkers or peers that are are all kind of um of a similar mindset and they decide okay I'm going to start a group practice. How do you kind of figure out, um, you know, who's a good fit, and how do you let someone go if they're not a good fit? Um, you know, do, do you kind of have a kind of a, a way to go about that? Do you have like a trial thing? Do you just just an interview? Is it just a intuition? How how do you go about that? And and if you have any examples, like have you had to let someone go? Like have you had any hurdles of actually this person? Not necessarily as you, I'm sure you've picked up, you know, if they're like a detriment, but like just someone that, you know, this isn't a good fit for us.
1: Well, you know, I think there's a lot of it's the normal stuff. And and one thing you have to do when you're doing private practice work is like you have to kind of look at what are the official things that you've been experiencing through institutions? And what are the things that you're going to do in your own business practice? Um, and some of the things you kind of you're like, okay, this stuff is for a place that has 15 lawyers and all the other stuff. So I just I'm not I can't do that, you know. Um, but some things you might skimp on because you you don't think it's that important. And so like I can say, like I've had um I've had to learn that like for instance the formalization of an interview process. It needs you need to be formal when you do interviews. You can't just have conversations. And at a certain point it was like, oh, you know, I'm just gonna have a conversation with the person. We're just gonna, you know, we're gonna rap Mm -hmm. about it. And it's like, no, I need to, you need to be vetted by our our admin first. Like, so you put in an application, you structure an application so that you get the information that you need. So like, for instance, um, I'm asking for, a letter of of intent that talks about their demonstrated experience with multicultural work, right? Mm. And demonstrated is a big, important piece. It's not how you feel. It's not your commitment. I, I love that people have commitment, but what work have you done? You know, what, mm. what have you actually like put on the line for this, right? Because a lot of times doing this kind of work, isn't going to pay you very well. It might not lead you to the most prestigious thing, but if you, if you stuck with a community that says something, you know, mm. um, So going through, like looking at how they do the application process, making sure that like, so for instance, I use an application that tells them a lot about us on the front end. And so I'm absolutely sure there are, in fact, I can see the statistics on people who start the application and don't finish it, right? And so I'm like, okay, you know, and I look at that and I say, yeah, they read it and they said, this isn't for me. And that's great. You know, I don't want to argue with anybody. I'm not here to try to control people. That is not, it's just not a good look. It's not useful use of time. Um, what I am here to do is make sure that people, you know, we believe in informed consent and autonomy and all that stuff that goes for clients. That also goes for people who are going to work with you. So they should know this is how I'm, I'm hardline about this. It's like, you're going to take care of folks. You're not going to like, you know, obviously we're not going to have someone in here who's going to tell someone who's gay that they shouldn't be gay anymore or something like that, or that a person of color, that there's no racism or that, you know, it's just, you mm-hmm those people can't come to the door. And if they try to sneak through the door, you know, it's, it's gonna be easy to tell, you know? So you go through the regular application and then I have my um, administrative team, they vet based on, you know, different information I give them to to look for. And it's like, do they have experience? Have they done these things? And they, they go through it and make sure before it even comes to my desk, whether this is a person who's hireable, right? And then once we establish that they're hireable, then I'll do an interview. And in the interview, you know, I asked all the, the regular questions. I also asked, like, um, I do complicated vignettes. You know, I, I asked them to 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 tell me what they would do in real life. I'm looking to see how they interact, how they interact with me, um, how they've interacted with our admin staff. Like, all that stuff is going into how, because because there is a leap of faith you have to make when someone's going to work with a client. Like, I don't know, especially if you're not, if you're a person who's licensed, then I'm not going to be watching your your sessions. I'm not going to be involved in that at that level. And so I have to be able to trust that the person person's going to work autonomously and and be ethical, you know. Um, that's another thing. I'm an ethics professor. So I, I do mix in kind of ethical questions and stuff as we kind of talk. And I'm just trying to kind of see where people stand on that. Because if people stick to ethics, a lot of times that's if you actually do the ethical thing, a lot of times that aligns with the social justice thing to do. Um, so there's there's the vetting process is, is not short. And it's, you know, to make sure that we we have people who want to do what, what I'm asking and who I think can do it. Right. And both of those things have to happen at the same time, because if they don't want to, if they don't value it, if they don't want, you know, then it becomes a fight. Um, and. Again, this isn't, I just don't feel like it's my role to fight with clinicians and like make them do anything that they they don't want to do. It's more of, hey, you know, we're not working well together. It's cool. You know, you're going to be fine out in there and I'm going to be fine over here and we don't have to have any static about that kind of thing. Um, And I think that that's what it comes down to in terms of if someone like leaves or, you know, like the way I look at Deeper Than Color in some ways is kind of like an incubator for folks who want to do social justice oriented psychotherapy in the world and they come in they hang out with us for a while we you know i help them learn the business in a lot of ways they don't have to deal with certain stuff like how do you know how how do you make sure all the phone calls get, get answered how do you make sure that uh you know you pay all these bills on time and get all the overhead taken care of you know like what do you do to do all these things? Well, we take care of that because I've gotten good at that and I have admin administrative support to help with that. And if someone wants to kind of finish with us and like maybe step off and do their own practice, a lot of times that's that's wonderful. We're, we're, we just want to get give you, you referrals, you know? Um, and if it doesn't work out, I think that what it comes down to is um, being honest about it in the front end. You know, like, hey, you know, this isn't working and it's it's fine. It's not working. I don't don't believe in recrimination and like going after people or, you know, obviously we can't. It's illegal to even have like, you know, real non-competes that they talk about having. Like we we do say, like, you know, please don't work in another practice while you're working with us because we're doing all this advertising for you. But once you leave, you just go do your thing. So like separating from us is is pretty easy um, because we're not going to put any impediments. If you have clients, we're going to send them with you because they're with you already, you know, is a lot of um, group practices, they do kind of predatory stuff. And that's another side of what we, one of one of the reasons I wanted to do deeper than color was to also address the fact that I saw so many people who were in group practice who were, who were coming into group practices, um, having really, really horrible experiences, feeling trapped, feeling overworked, feeling like they couldn't, you know, make decisions about their life because this person who said, who came in and said they were, you know, going to help them end up trapping them. Um, And so I don't want any kind of sense of that in this, in our practice, like everyone's here because they want to be, if they don't want to be, it's not hard to kind of step away. And um, if we have a difference of opinion, again, I'm not looking for power and control. I'm also not looking to recriminate or go after people. It's just like, yo, this doesn't, this is what our values are. This is what my expectations are. If we can't come to agreement on that, hey, you're grown up, you know, yeah, you're grown up with a whole ass doctorate or a whole ass master's degree. I don't, you know, maybe I'm wrong, but just in this space with us, we're going to do it this way, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, and I think, um, you know, to that point, if you know, are you wrong? I think no. Um, you know, you hear so many, you know, obviously you run a supportive group practice, um, but there are, you just hear horror stories of, you know, I think maybe people that maybe start out with the the right idea but then they just lose focus you know and it kind of does become more about you know the clients hours build you know all all of that and less about the original purpose of you know of why you got started and so um you know you already kind of touched upon it but just around you know that the growth you know just how you support the growth of those clinicians that kind of come in and then you know spread their wings and go and do their own thing whether they're you know leaving the area or just you know wanting to to start their own um have you you know i guess he's kind of already answered it but just you know have you had any experience of of, of people uh kind of coming through and now they're out doing their own thing and you know it's still a you know a, a, a positive relationship like you mentioned you're you know now referring people to to uh, past clinicians that worked with you
1: yeah, I mean, we we have um, uh, we have. I'm only trying to think. Do they want me to, to mention? Because it? no. like talk about people <laughs> by, by name, name yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. But um, <laughs> you know, we've had multiple clinicians who who have um, kind of come in and they spent time with us. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, six months to a year or so, and then they feel like comfortable to kind of step out and do their own thing. Um, I think that um, one of the things that I try to help people with is to feel autonomous as they kind of step away. Um, I don't want people to feel like they've done anything wrong. Like I don't want, you know, I don't want to materially interfere. I also don't want to emotionally or professionally interfere with folks. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the hope is that folks have a good experience and then they can go out and they can kind of take what we've done here and we play with the like the idea of calling folks deeper than color alumni and whatnot. Like we want people to kind of take this model and you know build on it and use it in other spaces. Because in the end, you know, in 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 this type of work, people get in this weird space where they start feeling like they're competitive, but we're not. Like there's enough pain for for everybody to 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 have a lot of work as healers. You know what I'm saying? Like we, like that, the issue isn't whether you're going to get clients or not, it's whether you have enough space to serve everybody who needs it. And so like, when I see folks doing this kind of competing stuff and like being weird, you know, I just don't, I don't get it. And I, I mean, I I do get it, but I don't get it. Like in here, I understand it up here. Um, pointing them out for the people on voice. I'm pointing at my heart and then I'm pointing at my head. Um, but like, it's, it's, um, it, it really seems silly to me that you would ever want to get in the way of another clinician doing their work. You know, if they're going to do good work and you agree with what they're doing, like I'm gonna send, uh, I'm, I'm happy to send, um, or referral to someone if they're the better, the better fit, you know? Yeah. And I think that that's something that is missing. And that's also one of the reasons that there's scarcity is because people hoard, you know, they'll hoard clients, they'll hoard referrals, they don't want to give. you know, and, and it gets weird, you know, like, not everyone, I I think there's some really cool communities. I'm on a bunch of Facebook groups, where people are constantly asking, hey, I got a referral, you know, can you go, can can you pick this person up? Um, I have a really nice group of fellow founders in the Bay Area, Black founders who kind of all have different therapy practices. Mm -hmm. And we've begun to kind of to talk and and interact with each other. So there there are some really cool communities of folks, but then there's also kind of this other thing out there. Um, And I think that one of the when we talk about the scarcity piece and the overwork piece, we, we have to talk about insurance. And what insurance does to our industry in terms of reducing access and making it so that therapists, because they don't pay at a rate that is commensurate with our training and our level of of expertise. Um, And by that, I mean, just to be really clear with the folks who don't really know, like if you think about a physician who gets very similar amount of training as a PhD clinical or counseling psychologist, um, the payers... Will pay for a 15-minute meeting, and pay at a level that is like twice as much as ours. Um, but similar investment, similar amount of loans, similar amount of time in, in in pre-work and and professional practice and all that stuff. It's not exactly the same, but I'm talking about like a 200% difference based on what they're valuing. And what people don't get when we talk about this because they think, oh, well, you're being greedy. It's like if you feel that way, okay, but. No one's arguing that the physician shouldn't be able to go do the golf course and do all that stuff. Uh, What we're saying is we need to be paid at a a fair level, which would make it so that clients can access us better. Because as it is, the lower rate makes clinicians take more clients than they should. Um, Generally, best practices is that you should only take maybe 20 people a week. Because if you think about what that means, you're spending 45 minutes to an hour with someone who may be dealing with some very intense issues going on, you know? And as a human being, everyone, if you've ever sat with a friend or you sat with like a student or you sat with somebody who was having a really hard time, that will touch you. It doesn't just, you know, they don't just have it in your, you're there in the little box and you could see it and observe it, but it doesn't affect you. It's like every time you see, if you see someone cry, it makes you want to cry. You know, if you see someone angry, it makes you angry. If you see someone mistreated, you feel outraged, you know, and imagine doing that all day, every day, you know, it's going to have an impact. And we talk about that in terms of burnout and the way that paying happens so that folks can get an actual living wage. um, Folks end up seeing more clients than they should, which means that client one through, through 10, great client, 10 through 20, good. Client twenty one through thirty, suddenly we're wondering whether they're getting the same service. They're probably almost surely not getting the same service as client one through five, and so that's also in you know why some people have these bad experiences because their their therapists can't even feel for them anymore because they're so burned out. And this yeah. goes on. It's not just that one week. It's this is years. You know, people just like burn at both ends. Um, and we, I don't think that that's in the conversation enough that that this is this is created by an industry that just doesn't want to value mental health care for people who they are supposedly serving and who are paying them. Um, and I'm talking about insurance companies because yeah. they're getting paid by their clients um, and then they're not getting the value back.
0: Well, I think that's why, you know, what ends up happening with so many of the, um, you know, clients being therapists that that I work with is that you know, they're working in these agencies, these clinic settings where that's, that's, you know, just a huge problem. And, and, you know, one of the biggest reasons why they're looking to go out in private practice. Yeah. You know, some of it's a money thing. There's definitely, there is a money difference, but there's also, it's just burnout. You know, you just get so burned out by, you know, 20 plus clients a week and, you know, everyone has their own experience. I guess, um, with that, um, it kind of, it rewinds right re, re, rewinds way back to kind of when you started your own thing but um i wanted to i didn't want to not touch upon kind of like the plunge you took to start this practice so it's like you know there's there's something there's comfort in regardless of the other drawbacks there's comfort in that paycheck every week you're getting from that agency that you know that school where you know wherever it is that you you are um how, do you have any recommendations and/or like your experience taking that plunge to be like I'm, you know, gonna just da- you know poke my feet in just a little bit and just do like a little bit part time, get one or two, or I'm just diving, you know, head first, and I know the clients are out there, and I'm gonna start my own private practice, and you know, I'm done with the, the clinic. So um, I didn't know if you had some, you know, thoughts on that because there's there are so many people that are so resistant to, um, you know, to step outside of that for the fear of well what what if there's no one out there you know what if what if I you know if I can't get the clients that I need
1: mm-hmm. yeah, so I didn't take a plunge. I gotta be real with you there was no plunging for me yeah. it was um so my I'm a I'm the chair of a counseling department. I'm a tenured professor. that is my primary employment and what I was taught as a student I was mentored into is the idea that as an academic, You can build a practice in a much safer way, you know, and and it's not just for academics, but if you can find as a psychologist, right, and speaking specifically to like doctoral level folks, Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of options for things you can do that will tolerate a practice, you know, and um, whether you're talking about working academia, you can work in corporate spaces, you can work in a lot of places, because if you're not working for, if you have your own company, right, is different than working for another employer. That's a whole, it's a different kind of dynamic that that happens. So very few places will bar you from creating your own space. And all you have to do at that point is figure out how to manage time and do it in a way that's not going to hurt, you know, your primary employment space, right? So for me, it was about keeping within a 10-hour framework right Mm -hmm. so that was what was given to me by the 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 school they say you can do 10 hours of outside stuff so i made sure i kept things within 10 hours and i was able to do a practice and the the thing that i would tell people is like it's about a lot of it is about being planful you know Mm -hmm. and deciding you know okay these are the things i need i need to be able to see people i need to be able to keep my records um you know, in a way that is HIPAA compliant. Um, and I need to have the time and space to kind of to to be able to think through that stuff. It's also great to have a community around you, but that doesn't always happen. It's kind of hard. It's 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 nice to sometimes be part of networks that can help you, but a lot of times these insurance networks are not going to pay you at the level that you need to be. And so figuring out all those things can kind of feel daunting for folks. But what I, I think that they need to remember is like, Hey, what have you already accomplished in life? Like this is not the most complex task that you had to do. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, like, yeah, like, you know, it's, it's like, did you do comprehensive exams? Cause I could have swore that's like a five hour exam that you had <laughs> to do from memory with citations. I don't think that sitting down and figuring out simple practice is going to be quite as hard as that, you know? And yeah. Just, you know, remembering where you're coming from. Remember that you do have a community. When I first started, I asked, for instance, uh, I talked to a number of friends who were actually in the field already doing stuff. And I said, Hey, can I can I see your paperwork? You know, can I can I use that? And they and I thought I was just gonna use it to inspire them. They're like, just take it, you know. So if you even look at right now my intake form, I actually cite the people who I got the work from on this on the form. And it's like almost 10 years later, but that was their form, you know. So let yeah. me, and this, you know, I've modified it. Um I think the 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 big piece is you 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 don't have to jump into kind of a full-time practice piece because especially if you're not going to conform to being paid very little for your time. If you're getting paid $60 for a session, which some people might feel like is a lot, but you gotta also remember that there's overhead. We're talking about a business here. So, like, when someone says they're looking at a therapist and they're like, oh, you're making $100 an hour, you're making $300 an hour, what people need to understand is that this is not, this is not salary, you know? Yeah. This is the income from your small business for that hour. If I was a running convenience store and I'm making $300 an hour, that may or may not make it so that I could either continue or not, you know, the yeah. lights have to be kept on. There's a certain proportion of that that goes away. The government takes a certain proportion of that. And so if you're if you're working at $60 an hour for a session because insurance is paying whatever and you got to do whatever, then you might be taking $10 an hour home, you know, if you're not careful. And why would I get a doctorate in psychology? Why would I spend all the money it takes to do that to make $10 an hour, which can be less than minimum wage, you know? Yeah. Um, and so it's a complicated thing. But if you're if you think about kind of how you're going to approach it, and you trust, and you also make sure that you have the secondary things going. So, like for instance, you might say, "I feel like I'm jumping around, but I'm I'm, I'm gonna get there." Um, you might say, "Okay, look, I don't gotta. It, it's really it's really privileged to say that you have uh, a tenure track job, and that's why you can do it because it's hard to get tenure track jobs. That's true. But when I first started, I was adjunct professoring, so." Mm-hmm you know, it was, I had multiple gigs, right? So there's gigs teaching a class here and there and doing my therapy stuff here and there. You can also be doing consulting work. You can also be working part-time in a, you could be working uh, less than full-time in a counseling center, for instance, or a clinic, you know, because mm-hmm. 34 hours is full-time. Um you can get your benefits from that space and then you can go ahead and start working on your practice. And you can, that can be sustainable forever or you can move over and just do the practice itself. One of the things that I think a lot of people don't think about is, you know, they think about the risk. They don't think about the freedom that comes with it. Um, the back of my head in every decision I make is the knowledge that I can always just do this practice, you know, If everything else falls apart, if, you know, whatever, whatever I can do, you know, Lucy on the peanuts, you know, I can have my shingle, I can set psychology for five cents, and I'm gonna keep going, you know, and so I can, it's just a matter of scaling and expanding. So if I put instead of putting 10 hours or so in a week into this, if I put 20 or 40 hours, what does that look like? Yeah. Yeah. and so people, I would say to the folks out there who are thinking about starting a private practice who are really worried about, like, okay, can, do I have the money to invest? Do I have all that stuff? Think about doing a five-hour part-time practice first, you know? Like, don't think about, don't go out there and I need to rent an office for a week. Why? You're not going to use it for like months, you know yeah. what I mean? Potentially yeah. for a year. It takes a while. So how about renting half a day and fill up that half a day, you know? Then rent a full day, fill up that day. And then you you scale the same way you scale any other business. You have to think of it like a business, you know, because it is a business. Yeah. You you have to, you have to decide like, Hey, you know what? If someone takes my time and they, they, they don't show up, then I have to still charge them. And you know why? Plumbers do that too. Everybody does that. You know, it's like, it's not.
0: Yeah. Like, you know, you don't show up to your doctors. You're, you're, you know, you're going to get your cancellation fee, you know? And I, and I think with, um, You know i remember back to um you know obviously so you know how i got started with consulting um you know was helping my wife and set up her private practice and then helping others do the same and i remember when my wife started her she was at a clinic and you know kind of getting to the burnout but not so much I think because of the number of clients, but just the work, you know, it was a trauma mm-hmm. clinic. There was a lot, we had a new baby at home, you know, and like you said, you you don't, you don't just close the folder and then you're done, you know, and the, and it stays in the folder. Like you, you internalize mm-hmm. all that. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, but to your point about like a network, you may not have a large network, um, you know, but through Facebook and through other, you know, places where you can go, it's like, Hey, can I, you know, can I take, can I borrow your, in- your intake for uh, form, for example, but also, Um, hey, you, you have a private practice. Can I rent an hour's worth of space? Like when my wife did it, she had someone that was, um, you know, established, had her own private practice. I think she also worked at the clinic if I remember correctly, um, you know, and was kind of doing both. And she's like, yeah, I have the space. I'm not using it these afternoons, you're not working these afternoons and I think she rented it for like I think she gave it to her for a little while and then even just started being like okay give me 10 dollars an hour when you use it. You know, so if you're charging 60 or 75 or whatever you're getting from, you know, when she first did it she was um going through insurance, now she's private pay, but um you know and it's and it is a calculation, it is a business and and you know that's what, you know, that's why people like me and my company exists is to help you know through that process because they don't teach you a lot of the business stuff through through schooling but um <laughs> but yeah to your point you don't you don't need to take the plunge uh you know some people if they're so fed up they might want to or if they have a partner at home that can support them so they can can do that um but yeah to to just dip your feet i wanted to um just meant because there's there's so much that you get with a group practice or with a, um, you know, in a clinical space that, um, you know, one of them is kind of the relationships you build up with, uh, either other clinicians, like, you know, a referral network or local hospitals, um, you know, that might have like open beds for in cases of emergency or, you know, things like that. Did you have that kind of established already when you went into your private practice or your group, or did that was it more of a general? We have a local hospital, and if someone's in need, I'm going to send them there. Like, or do you have like an open relationship with with anyone? I just kind of because depending on your work and the you know the the clients that you see, sometimes that is more um, apparent than 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 other times. So I just didn't know as someone who started a group practice, kind of how you how you cope with um, you know emergency situations.
1: So. Because our group private practice is uh, virtual only, um, we don't see people in person. We do a lot of vetting, uh, making sure that clients or we screen clients to make sure that they're more appropriate for our practice. We don't take folks who are severely mentally ill, mentally ill, um, and we tend to not take folks who are, for instance, just recovering from a, uh, a suicide attempt or you know, anything where they're coming out of the hospital or something like that. So Mm -hmm. for the most part, we're not finding beds and stuff. Isn't one of our primary pieces. Um, We, we kind of use the infrastructure that's around us because we're also statewide. Right. So, we're not like centralized to, I'm in Oakland. I have a clinician in San Diego. I have another clinician in, in one part of LA. I got a clinician in another part of LA, you know, LA it's really big. So they ain't yeah. necessarily near yeah. each other. Yeah. Um, and so we don't have, you know, relationships with all these different spaces, but what we, we all kind of follow our basic protocols of like using nine, eight, eight now, um, and being able to know the location of of our clients we want to know where they are when they're seeing us um we we if we need to send someone out there um uh, we also if they get to a point where they need more intensive services then we refer to someone local mm-hmm. um and we help them get to that space so we're not trying to hold on to people who would be better served by someone else um so that's kind of what we do around that because again it's it's it'd be pretty impractical to try to like make enough connections with enough hospitals to do that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Especially with how wide of an area your, your coverage is. Um, All right. You know, obviously I could keep going and you have a a wealth of information. Um, Any, any obstacles that like you didn't anticipate, you know, I know that you mentioned, um, kind of the hiring process as one of them to like the actual having a formal interview process. Um, Mm -hmm. anything else that you can think of, of like, you know, for someone who's new to either joining a group practice or starting their own that like, Hey, watch out for this. It blindsided me. Um, or do you feel like it was all pretty cut and dry when you started building it?
1: I think, I don't know if anything like necessarily blindsided me. Um, I think the thing (laughs) is is less of like something bad happening and more of just like you're going through payroll and you're signing stuff and then you're clicking to run the payroll and you see how much money is coming out of an account with your name to other people and you realize that folks are dependent upon that and you Um, and that's that's a thing it's not something that you're you're ever i don't i was never prepared for that i I hadn't even thought about how that would make me feel and how mm. responsible i felt for the people who work with me um it's it, it's it's sobering in a lot of ways you know um it's also exciting you know where you're just like wow i can do that i can i can facilitate this you know um because yeah. you i don't know how you know, like depending on where you come from and, and what you thought your options were, you know, like I in my head as a kid, I might have thought about making, you know, 70,000, 100,000, whatever dollars a year. You know, I wasn't yeah. thinking about paying people that.
0: You yeah. 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 And yeah. like what
1: that means, yeah. you know. And so um, I think that that was kind of one of the pieces that that was surprising for me. Um, I think. The amount of just administrative work that goes along with it, like um, it didn't surprise me. I I kind of built my way up. But now looking at the apparatus where I have two administrative workers and, and you know, I have like, you have to have infrastructure, you have to have apparatus around you. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't just do this off of vibes. You know, you have to like, and you have to learn stuff. You have to learn about tax law. You have to have an accountant. You have to like, you know, engage with attorneys and do these different things to make sure that you're, you're following the laws and the guidelines and all these other things. So there is a, like, there's a, a big component about this. And we said this before but it's not just that that it's a business you have to become a business person doing it and if you're not willing to to make that leap if you're like if you have a philosophical thing that says you can't do that then this isn't the space because you'll be uncomfortable and make people uncomfortable yeah you know Mm.
0: um
1: and so i think because for me as i was doing all the psych training and all the other stuff you know, I was also trying to make ends meet and I had my little side businesses. I was a photographer for a while. I made websites for people. I did all these different things and all those skill sets ended up helping me with this business. And uh, so I don't have to hire a web designer. I don't have to do different things because I can do it myself. Yeah. Um, so I think also bringing re- reminding yourself about all those things that made it up you before you became holistically a clinician or something like that because you were doing, you know, all of us in grad school, we were doing stuff. One of my uh good friends, um she, she uh would throw these parties that were really, you know, um just really kind of, I don't know what the right word is, they're stylish. Like, you know, just she would she would make, we were in Carbondale, Illinois, like this really small town, uh, middle of a bunch of woods and cornfields and stuff. And she would do these like really chic parties and stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Like her her style was just always impeccable about the way she did that stuff. Now she has a practice that is branded on luxury, you know, and it's about yeah. making black women feel like bosses and luxurious, and they're 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 that they deserve that high level of you know. And so she took that skill set that's like part of her identity. And she yeah. turned it into like the identity of this practice and it's successful as hell, you know, and that's kind of what I've tried to do. And I think that's what other people have to do is like look at who they really are, what they can stand behind, you know, mm-hmm. what's going to keep them interested. And then infuse that into the work you're doing and into the business you're building, because it is an extension of you. It's not just this widget that you're throwing around. You know, it's it's you, you, you breathe life into it and you want it to kind of go and at the same time remember you're just a business it's just a business it's not more important to people you know it's not more important than people's health it's not more important than people's welfare um and you making a buck is not the the best thing in the world it's a thing that you want but you know if you're if you're a good clinician you should know that just because you want it don't mean it's the best thing you know um, yeah and I, and so
0: i think so many people come into um it's funny when i when i you know, talk to to therapists and, you know, explain. It's like, well, you're starting a small business. Like, you're an entrepreneur when you go out in private practice, and like that idea of like, wait, I'm a small business or an entrepreneur. Like, that's not what I set out for. Like, I set out to help people, and like, you know, but they they both need to exist for it to be successful. And um, to your point, I think if you find find something that you are passionate about you know, whether it's, you know, luxury and, you know, for for your friend's sake, and like, it's gonna, it's gonna help you get through some of the hurdles that I think you find along the way of like, uh, is it, is it, you know, this is hard. Um, yeah. you know, and so I think if you're, if you're still being able to, um, you know, kind of remember why you started it, I think is a, is a good way to get through. Um, all right. So, um, before we wrap up, I'd love for you to take some time and plug anything you're developing or looking to share.
1: Sure. Um, so you mentioned I'm an author, so I've, I've been able to do a couple of really cool children's books that, um, they're part of what I call the, um, healthy conversation series. Uh, one is daddy. Why am I Brown? Which is, you know, this. That book there. And then the other one is uh Black Joy. And they're both um about a little uh multi-ethnic black girl who asks her parents about uh different ideas around race. So like at first it's like the color of my skin. Why, you know, why are you one color brown? Why am why is mommy another color brown? Why am I a different color of brown? And like having a candid conversation about that. And in the process of going through that story, helping kids to learn how to talk about skin color and parents how to learn how to talk about skin color and teachers, because um, kids learn the stuff early and there can be some really nasty things that happen, you know, like in terms of how people describe skin. Does your skin look like, you know, terracotta or does it look like something that doesn't sound nice, you know, Um, and so giving that kind of language. Black Joy is a continuation with the same family, but she asks basically, you know, we talk all, we talked about being brown, but now you're you're saying that you're black, and so it's really exploring what race is uh, from at, at an age appropriate level for kids to think about race as a story So you know, not a concept but a story, and how that story was created by people for a specific reason um, that we can track through time and history and how it affects people, and then how race. Can be the concept of it can be shifted from the kind of racist intent to a Black joy, a Blackness that is about resilience and about taking care of each other and about pride and dignity and things like that. And so those are the two children's books that I've come out with. And then uh, most recently, um, this, I'll actually put it up because I really, this book is a book I edited. Um, It's called Practical Social Justice, and it's about the diversity, equity, inclusion strategies based on the legacy of Dr. Joseph L. White. Um, So I edited this book. I have one chapter in it, but there's a whole bunch of other contributors, and we're all mentees to Dr. Joseph L. White, who basically um, was one of the founders of Black psychology, uh, one of the first Black psychologists in uh, the country, and over the course of over 50 years, he mentored psychologists, not just Black psychologists, but psychologists and counselors and educators from all kinds of different spaces and walks of life and different races and ethnicities and all that stuff, um, to help to change the infrastructure of our country uh, from one that was very white to one to one that was much more diverse, so that more diverse people can, can be served and more diverse people can come through. Um, so he would talk about the Browning of America, and he did that from starting ELP, which is Educational Opportunity Program in California, to helping start Ethnic Studies at San Francisco State, to uh, helping start the Association of Black Psychologists, and and moving forward. So there's all these people who have who who dedicate their lives to serving others, to social justice, to working with people who came from his lineage, and we talk about how we all took lessons he, he he taught us and navigated difficult situations related to diversity, inclusion, social justice in educational settings, governmental settings, business settings, um, personal settings and stuff. So it's a really cool book because there's like, you know, there's like a university president and then there's a person who I literally had to tell the, the publishers, hey, you know, they finished their doctorate. So change that MA to a PhD, please on Mm -hmm. on at the last print and so you have this like whole spectrum of people who are um who've had these experiences over a long period of time and it's it it, it's you know it's it's meant for folks who want to potentially be mentors who want to help develop leaders um who want to develop themselves as leaders um and for diversity inclusion professionals and counselors anybody who wants to kind of gain some of the the really cool stuff that we got from dr white it's almost like you we would i would joke about the book being as if he was still alive and we were at the marriott at one of the conferences and you got to walk by and he just kind of pulled you over and said hey come here and the book is like him hooking you up and talking to you so those are those are my my projects that i've been kind of focused on lately
0: that's great um I'll definitely pick up a copy of um, that one there. Um, I did want to mention, I mentioned it uh, before when we were caught talking before we started recording this, that, um, you know, I did pick up a few copies of your your other two books, um, and I got it for my children and for their schools. Um, You know, obviously, we need more books like these in schools, not less, counter to what's been happening in some places. Mm -hmm. Um, But I was reading one of them with my daughter last week, and the first takeaway for me anyway was was just how natural the book presents the conversation around race and um you know and as a parent and as a white parent it gave me the words to talk about skin color and just the social rationale for creating race that you know i stumbled with and you know still do sometimes and so um anyway i really appreciated you know that that part of it and uh, my daughter especially loved using the color chart at the uh the back of the book to to choose her her yeah. skin tone and um anyway so um is is deeper than color hiring
1: um, we're always open if right now we're not a listener active. in
0: california you know interested and in yeah if, if, you've certainly if sold you, your practice so <laughs>
1: <laughs> well you know if if they're in california if they're licensed in california and they believe in this um in in, in our mission um and they want to work with a group of really cool therapists who are gonna like uh you know we have our um uh consult group and and stuff that that we do and and we kind of work off each other people get to know each other um then yeah they can it's it's if they go to the website so www.deeperthancolor.com um they can go and there's a tab that says you know we're hiring and they can they can definitely go there we're definitely taking new clients, so uh, you know, I, I we actually just brought on a new clinician. Uh, so uh, I, f- I feel like I should I can't say one person's name and not say everybody's name, so I'm not going to do that. But um, like we 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 have hired recently, so we have some openings, and um, and we're really looking to be a, a service to the community. We we focus on working with folks who live. Uh, on the margins, you know, like folks who are coming from, uh, you know, black and brown spaces, uh, any other PLC folks, uh, people, from LGBTQI plus communities, immigrants, anybody who's kind of coming from that space and white folks, you know, it's like white male, cis, you know, Clark Kent dude, you can come too as long as it's like <laughs> you want to work on something, you know, it's, it's it. we're not, I, I think I, I, it's easy to kind of look and say, oh, they don't want to work with, we want to work with everybody. But we want to work in a very specific way that's going to help people to kind of live their lives in a way that's healthy for them and also that's healthy for other people, you know. Um, and so, yeah, and that—that's kind of what we're doing. We're also doing. Uh, so, I guess if I'm going to keep plugging because we are talking business. Yeah, um, keep plugging. We, uh, we... Also,
0: mention where we can find you online too. Besides, if, if it's just your website, if that's the best you know resource, or if
1: you social or whatever. So we're on we're on Instagram at deeper than color um or um you can find me at uh DR BF Palmer so Dr BF Palmer. You can find me on Twitter with that. You can also find Deeper than Color and myself on on uh Facebook. We have Facebook a uh, Facebook page. Um you can find the books uh if you go to Black Joy book.com you can find or you just go to the, the deeper than color uh you can find the books um all of them you can find links to Amazon or direct sales from us or from Rutledge which is where the uh, practical social social justice book was um yeah we're also I mean we're looking we' we've we've got some contracts recently with some nonprofit groups and we're serving them. And so if you're a nonprofit or a community organization or any organization that wants to have a group of clinicians who focus on this type of work, serve your employees. We we have space and we're we're looking to to grow in that area. So um yeah, we're 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 trying to do big things. Um I kind of try to I dream and I try to make things cool happen. Um and and then when I have all these other clinicians with all their ideas, it's like you know, whatever whatever folks want that can work, we're gonna go with it. And um, yeah, I'm just really excited to see how we continue because this is still we've only been doing this for a year and a half. So we'll see what it looks like the next year and a half.
0: Well, that that's awesome. Um, you know, obviously, I wish you tremendous success because what you're doing is is really great. Um, I want to thank Dr. Bedford Palmer once more for coming on. Um, you know, I really enjoyed this conversation. So I want I want to thank, thank you. you and it went way more than I thought it would but I'm I'm happy that it did so I appreciate that all the time
1: oh man this is great I appreciate you giving me some time you know I, I always joke it's like well my my primary title is professor so if you give me talking I'm gonna I'm a go uh well, but it was fun it was it was good talking and I really appreciate you inviting me to be on I know this is um you know you've been how you talked about how you're developing this and like you know it's just it's, I know as a former podcaster to uh you know who you who you allow into your into your space is, is is an important piece so thank you yeah
0: thank you all right take care thanks be well you too Bye. that wraps up this episode stay tuned for our next episode where we will be having a conversation with a therapist who runs a successful online emdr group practice <laughs> Lean Towards Joy was created to help heart-centered entrepreneurs start and grow their businesses. We have helped therapists and entrepreneurs across the country navigate HIPAA, LLCs, and removing the hurdles to help them follow their passion. If you'd like to bring more joy into your life and connect with Lean Towards Joy, you can subscribe here or find us on social at Lean Towards Joy. You can also visit our website at leantowardsjoy.com. Thanks for listening.